This is one of the great passages of Scripture and uh, one that I've been quite excited about and one that is foundational, not only, uh, you know, in the sense that uh, there's a lot of sound theology, a lot of what we know and and, uh, glean from Scripture about God and about Christ in this passage, but it's one that you will revisit throughout your life. You will revisit it in in times of questioning and in times of doubt. You will revisit this passage to answer questions uh, about God's intention and plan and creation in, in your life. It's one that we will come back to again and again and again. And here, Paul has written this statement, this, this uh, section, verses 15 through 20, to the Colossians, almost as an elaboration upon verses 12 uh, through 14. Uh, Paul, Paul has given us this declaration about what God has done for us through Christ in verses 12 through 14. And now he speaks to us uh, about Christ and how, how, how it's even possible that Jesus could have done this for us, done this work of, of creation and new creation and making us new creatures. And so Paul has, has put together this beautiful statement here in verses 15 through 20. And because, you know, uh, because the way that this is so packed with theology and so worded, this actually, this is another passage in scripture that actually has a hymn backing to it. It's, it's a kind of Paul's uh, placement of an hymn within this section. And, and uh, you know, scholars think no doubt that um, they're not sure whether Paul penned this himself or, or whether this was something that was familiar in the church already. And he just thought, you know, this, this really sums up what I want to say. And so I'm going to use this. And, and then, but there's also bits and pieces in there of specific things that were, uh, were noted of Paul's theology of how he would word things. And so, you know, it's kind of, uh, perhaps maybe Paul took this hymn and uh, made a remix of it. He, you know, inserted his word here or there, like, you know, what I really want to say is this, or or here's how I traditionally communicate with uh, the churches, and here's the phrasing that they're familiar with, and so I'm going to kind of drop those things in there. And so this, this section uh, is, a, is a hymn that has been uh, kind of transposed in the middle of this uh, book, to match, but it speaks to the supremacy of Christ, how amazing and how awesome Jesus is. If you if you looked there um, just at the text quickly and, and saw an overview of some of the things that we that that are listed there in verse fourteen, Paul begins this amazing list uh, of truths about Jesus. You know, it, I, I know we're working on um, uh, on. Uh, this Ephesians 2 passage this coming week, but this is one that you're going to want to to commit to memory over time. As I said many times throughout your life, you're going to come back to this. And so, you know, starting in verse 14, we have this amazing list that's given to us about what Jesus has has done for us. You know, we have redemption through him, the forgiveness of sins. You know, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by for uh, by him, all things were created. Uh, things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. I mean, Paul just gives us this amazing list of who Jesus is. Now, 
you need to know this. You need to, you need to make this passage familiar with your heart because it, it, when, you're, when you go through life, your heart is going to waver and grow cold. Your heart is going to go through seasons of, of doubt. You're going to wrestle with things. And this is going to be something where you can come back. You can receive, uh, you, can, you can look at this list. You can hear what, what the word says about Jesus. And when we approach scripture, right, we want to be changed and transformed by it. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's magnifying Christ. He's magnifying Christ. And that's what we want to do every time we gather as his church. We want to magnify the Lord. We want to magnify Jesus. Now, of course, we know that, you know, if you got out a magnifying glass, that would mean that you would want to look at something closely. You would want to see those, those details there. And essentially, that's what Paul's doing, and that's what we want to do. We want to see Jesus magnified through Scripture this morning. And so what he's doing there is when we're talking about magnifying Jesus, we want to, we want to make him, we want to put him on display as beautiful. And that's what Paul seeks to do here in verses 15 through 20. He's, he's, he's kind of begging, he's, he's pleading with the Colossians, saying, don't you see don't you guys see what you have before you, what's available to you? Don't you see how wonderful and amazing Jesus is? He's, he's putting, him, uh, putting Jesus on display. And so he starts uh, just this, this beautiful passage uh, opening up in response to uh, verses 12 through 14 there. And he starts off, in verse 15, uh, giving us some information. And remember, what Paul has sought to do here is to identify Jesus with God, and he has sought to uh, say that Jesus is, is greater than everything. And so what he's doing and what we ought to do when we come to this list, when you're in seasons of difficulty, when you're in seasons of doubt, you, we ought to come to this list in verses 15 through 20, read through that list and pray that the Lord would, would help us have these same affections for Jesus that Paul has in communicating this. Because we're prone as sinful people, as selfish people, to look at other things. And what Paul is telling them here is that they already have everything that they need. And not only that they have everything available to them that they need, but that he's telling them, I know what you really need. The Lord knows what you really need. He knows that in, in your deepening relationship with him, you will find satisfaction for your souls. You will find what it is you actually need uh, in life, in seeking to glorify God, in seeking to see Jesus as beautiful and amazing and submitting to him and, and, and putting Jesus on display, that in turn will satisfy your souls. And so he goes on in verse 15 with this opening statement, and, and he kind of opens with two descriptions here of Jesus, of the Son of God. He says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. So he opens with these two things. He's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing that he says here is he is the image of God. The image of the 
invisible God. Now, an image is what Paul's basically saying here is that uh, Jesus looks like he represents God. He is the incarnation of God in the flesh. When you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You want to you want to experience God. You want to know what his character is like. You look at Jesus. That, that's what we're told in, uh, in the uh, book of John. You know, we're told that Jesus uh, was the word. He, he was with God and he was God. And then he came and dwelt among us. And later John will say, no one has seen God at, at any time. And, but the only begotten of the Father, in him we see, we see the image of God. And so uh, here, Paul is making clear to them that that. What you seek in this, in, in, in more spiritual fullness, as Colossians, you can find in the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. He is that likeness. He represents, he is God. And, and so Paul's point here through part of this passage is focusing on Jesus revealing God. His, his point, part of the, the um, trajectory that he's going to follow is that, that Jesus, he reveals God. Colossians 1.15, uh, you know, is, is very similar to that passage in uh, 1 John, or not 1 John, in John uh, 1, verses 1, 3, 18, uh, there, talking about that. But it's also similar to Hebrews 1, verse 3. It says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is, he, he is in relationship to God in that he is the representation, the likeness of God. And then we see here that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when Paul talks about being the firstborn, he's not speaking specifically like you and I would speak about something being, uh, you know, being the firstborn, not the first to come from the womb, not the first to actually be born, but he's, he's speaking here uh, to something greater than that. Uh, we, we, get, we get a little bit of a, of a clue, the firstborn of all creation there, we're told. Uh, you know, we, we have this, uh, we get, we get a little clue in the next section in verse 16 where it goes on to say, for by him all things were created. So what, what Paul's saying is he's not the firstborn, not the first one to be born in creation, but rather he is the one who is preeminent. He is over creation. So some of your uh, Bibles and the mo- most accurate translation would say that he is firstborn over all creation. Kind of simplifies it a little bit, therefore. It's not the firstborn of all creation, but the firstborn over all creation. What, what Paul is communicating is that Jesus is, is uh, his image and likeness is with God, but then also that Jesus because Jesus is God, he is also creator. He is the one who has created the heavens and the earth, the universe. He goes on uh, to communicate his relationship to creation in verse 16. Read with me. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Paul says, this is what it looks like to be the firstborn of creation. He's emphasizing in verse 16, Jesus's supremacy over creation. And and he does it by citing specific ways in which Jesus has created. He says, by him, all things were created. That's the first thing he says in verse 16. And then at the end there, he says, all things were created through him and for him. So Paul emphasizes the first thing in that verse, that Jesus is the creator. He's not creation, but he is the creator. An important distinction. Because that means that Jesus created all that is, all that exists in the world, in our universe. And he gives us those parameters of what Jesus has created. Secondly, he says all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's the created order, the universe, the things that that we can see with uh, science and technology. As you look through a telescope and you see the planets near and far, as you see the stars and, uh, you know, nebulas and all of those things, all of those things were created. They were his handiwork. Things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things were created by him. And when he talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, there's uh, an element to earthly power. There's an element to this supernatural spiritual power. And and we can kind of conclude that he's uh, revealing that, his supremacy over all supernatural powers, including evil supernatural powers, because look at what he says Uh, flip over just one chapter in the Colossians 2.15. Here's what Paul celebrates at uh, at the cross. He celebrates Jesus' triumph. And he says in verse 2.15, saying that Jesus is greater, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has defeated these supernatural powers, Satan and his uh, and the demons, Satan and those fallen angels who would seek to deceive. He has defeated this uh, empty deceit that Paul will speak of uh, in chapter two as well. This empty philosophy. Jesus has defeated all of these things. He is over them. They've been conquered at the cross. And those who put their faith in Christ are secure. And so Paul's emphasis here is to remark upon Jesus' amazing supremacy over all things. Over the things that you can see and the things that you can't see. It's one thing as people to be on guard against things that you can see. But it's the things that we can't control that we feel powerless to. And what Paul says is that when you look to Jesus, who is supreme, who is over all things, whether visible or invisible, whether rulers, thrones, dominions, powers of any sort, Jesus is supreme over all. When you were submitted to that king, when you were submitted to the right uh, king of the universe, those things cannot operate and act 
cannot defeat you because they have been defeated by Jesus. They can affect you, they can throw you off, they can attack you, but cannot defeat you because you belong to the Savior. And so we see in 16, all of these things were created by him. He tells us, by him, all things were created. Jesus is the beginning of creation. He's the one who, who uh, the, the world and the universe and all that is created starts with. with. With him, everything begins. And he goes on and says, all things were created through him. He's at the beginning. And the end goal of all things that are created are for him. All things were created through him and for him. He's at the beginning of creation, the beginning of the universe, beginning of all matter, all life, all things visible and invisible. He is at the beginning of all of those things, and he is at the end as the goal of the universe. The, 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 he is not just simply someone along the way, but he is our ultimate delight, our ultimate desire, the ultimate uh, uh, thing that we need. Jesus is the goal. It is all things were created for him. Everything that is in existence exists for Jesus. Everything that, that exists upon the earth, things that we can see and things that we cannot see, they exist to display the glory of Jesus. Psalms tells us that the heavens declare his handiwork. We are made in the image of God. We exist for him. We display his characters, his love, his attributes to one another. We give him glory in the way that we live, the flowers, the, the rocks on the earth, the water, the, every single molecule that exists, every single atom, every single uh, you know, nucleus there, I mean, down to just the smallest microscopic levels, exist for his glory. There's nothing that is out of place that is, that, that is there by accident. There's not one thing that is, is and, the, and these, some of these things don't even know things. You know, how many, how many people are on the earth? And they don't even know that they exist for his glory, but they do. Whether they're aware of it or not, they exist for God's glory. The things even that we consider to be, you know, like, oh, I don't really prefer that. I don't really like pine trees a lot, but they, that exists for God's glory, you know? I don't like those pine needles, but that is for God's glory. The wind that blows, the, the, the smells, the aromas that are produced from food and flowers, everything that exists is for the glory of God. There couldn't be a more beautiful way, uh, you know, to, to see that, by the, than by looking at how we are made in God's image. God has created, you know, I mean, I don't know, how many, what is it, like seven billion people upon the earth now or something like that? All of those people made in God's image, reflecting who he is. And so the people that we don't prefer, they're made in the image of God. The people that annoy us, they're made in the image of God. They're there for God's glory. Everything is, 
is made, that is made, is made for God's glory and is under the authority of Jesus. He is the one that gives breath, that gives life. He is the one that sustains. And so God plans ultimately to bring unity to all things in heaven and all things that are on earth under Jesus. That's what, that's what he says here uh, in verse 16. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities, that all, all of these things were created through him and for him. Now, some of those things don't, uh, they're, they're created for his glory, and some of those things don't know that they're created for his glory. Some people don't know that they're created for his glory. But, but there's kind of this tension in our time now where we, when Jesus came he, and, and had the inbreaking kingdom of God, remember we talked about that in Mark, where he's instituted his kingdom, and there's kind of this already not yet tension that exists in Scripture. That's kind of what commentators call it. Like, the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully realized. Jesus has full authority over all things because he, has, he, has, uh, he, he is the creator. He is supreme over all things. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. But yet, we also know that in the future, when we look at um, in Philippians 2.11, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's not happened yet. So there's kind of this tension where there will be a point where all things are in submission to him. So, God plans to bring this, all things, under his authority, his unit, or his, uh, his supremacy here, as he leads over all creation. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, so far in this passage, in the hymn, it's focused on Jesus' role in the beginning and at the end, right? It's talked about how in him, through him, he's before all things. And now, zooming in uh, to a different portion, he, he's talking about the present role of how things exist, how things are sustained. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. The universe, all things that are created, they, they owe their existence to Jesus sustaining them and holding them together holding every molecule, holding all pieces of matter, directing all traffic. You know, I mean, all of the things that happen upon the earth when a seed should sprout in the ground, what, you know, when a, a cloud should block the sun, like all of those things, they owe their, their allegiance and they owe their continuance in our universe to Jesus. It's not... I mean, like, without Jesus, gravity wouldn't be a thing. You know, we have these laws that are defined, and we have the, these uh, scientific understandings of things, but without Jesus, it's not a, a law or, uh, or a description of something that's holding those things together. It's Jesus whose word commands the weather 
who commands the laws of nature. It's Jesus who went with the disciples onto the boat at the Sea of Galilee when the storms were raging and just stood up and said, peace, be still. He commands all things under his authority. Every, everything that happens, everything that God has created is subject to his rule. And so Paul is saying this, he's making this point with the Colossians because he wants them to understand this idea of our, our, uh, our topic here, the supremacy of Christ, it works in this centrifugal fashion. Things in life only make sense when you keep Jesus at the center. He is the one that defines the, the spin, the rotation around, how you flow off into the world you go at that point when he sends you. You are sent off of that center point and you are, are um, pushed off into the trajectory that you are pushed off into, not by accident, not by chance, but by Christ's guiding hand as he sends you lovingly forward into that position that you were headed into. The Savior goes before you, preparing those good works that you would walk in them. He knows that, like, we need help. It's just like, you know, when, when my kids want to help do, uh, when I'm, like, trying to build something, and they want to hammer something, you know, I remember my dad did it for me. He, like, hammers, like, the nail almost all the way down. It's, like, the tiniest bit left. And he's like, okay, here's the hammer. You go through, and you just finish that last thing. It's, like, pretty hard to blow it when you only have to hammer, like, two millimeters more, and then it's flush. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's prepared these good works beforehand that we would walk in them. So he's making this declaration to the Colossians so that they would be excited. They would be uh, understanding that Jesus is, is amazing. He is so amazing. He's the one who's controlling, who, who has created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has created things that you can see and things that you can't see. He is, he is uh, supreme over all rulers, authorities. He is supreme over all demonic powers, all spiritual warfare. He is the one who has conquered all things, and you belong to him. And so Paul's saying, won't you, won't you just be satisfied in what he has given to you in chasing after him you don't need this these other things that are being offered but jesus is enough he goes on to now establish jesus as not only uh not only as creator but as the beginning of the church, the head of the church he goes on in verse 18 he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, the head of the body, the church. The, the body here is likened to the church, and Jesus is likened to a head. You know, we see this other places in the scripture. You know, the head gives life. The head gives direction and sustains. You know, there's... Uh, uh, they have those uh, 
those lizards with that defense mechanism where the, their tail comes off. And they're trying to, like, if a predator catches them and gets the tail, they can detach their tail, and then, like, the tail will grow back later. It's, like, crazy. But if you detach a lizard's head, it's, just, it's dead. You can't do anything, right? If you detach the head from any body, that body is lifeless. It, it cannot make decisions. It cannot continue going on. And here, what Paul is saying is Jesus is the head of the church. Without Jesus, without the one who drives and directs, he is the one who, has, who, who leads the church, who makes us exist. Without him, we got nothing. We are lifeless. And so because the Colossians here were being led to believe that you could have these other spiritual experiences that, that were, were greater, that, you could, that we, you could find something that was more flashy, more experiential in addition to Jesus, you know, you needed that to kind of go to the next level, to move up in your spiritual rankings. Because they were being told this, Paul holds up Jesus. He, he holds up Jesus as the one who is the only true, the only right source of life for the church, for the body. He says, you don't need these other things. Jesus is the head. Something else isn't going to sustain you. If you get rid of the head, then your body will die. Jesus is what you need. So Jesus is the one who is preeminent, who is supreme over all creation, and he is the one who is supreme over the church. And then he goes on to kind of describe what that means for us uh, through this phrase, he is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. Again, here we have another phrase, firstborn uh, from the dead. Now, again, just like he wasn't saying that Jesus is firstborn uh, from the womb, here he does not necessarily mean that Jesus is the one uh, to, you know, he's the first person ever to rise from the dead. We know that from, create, or that from Scripture that other people had been raised from the dead before Jesus. You know, we have Lazarus, we have Jairus' daughter, Elijah. He went in and he raised uh, the widow's son who was dead, and uh, he came back to life. And so, there, you know, there were many people who had been uh, raised from the dead before Jesus. But Jesus is different. He is the firstborn from the dead because he is the one who initiates the resurrection. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, what happened with him that was different than all of those other people? With Jesus, Jesus was raised from the dead and he defeated death. He went on to live forever, but we don't see Elijah, or we don't see Jairus' daughter walking around today. We don't see Lazarus walking around today. Those people were raised from the dead only to die again. They got old, you know, maybe they got ran over by like a donkey in a cart or something. <laughs> we don't know. Those people were raised from the dead only to die again, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, because he is the one who has initiated the resurrection. He was raised from the dead never to die again. He has defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 20 through 22 puts it this way. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Jesus is the one who initiates the resurrection. That's why it says just before that he is the firstborn from the dead, he is the beginning. You know what that word beginning there means? It means founder. He is the founder. He is the founder of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus initiates our resurrection and allows us to be resurrected from the dead. So just as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for as in, um, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is the one who has founded it so that you and I might have resurrection. Paul's point is this. Jesus's, uh, Jesus being from the beginning and being the firstborn, he's making the point again and again with these two words that Jesus is supreme over all things. He has, there's nothing that is not under his authority. There's nothing that he does not rule. He goes on in verse 19 to communicate now the fullness of Christ's deity. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're told that within Jesus is the fullness of God. That, that um, when it talks about the fullness of God, it means that Jesus is fully God, that he is completely man, completely divine. He's not two different people He is one, completely man, completely divine. Within Jesus, he's not like, you know, uh, he's not like junior God. Like, you know, there's God the Father and then like Jesus who's not quite good enough. But he is completely God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, when it talks about being pleased to dwell, it's saying that God in all his fullness, has chosen to dwell within Christ. Now, Paul is making this important statement because the Colossians were being told that they, in addition to uh, Christ, they could have a more full spiritual experience. They could gain more. They could have more. They could be experience this, this more uh, great, um, great spiritual life through following uh, this, this philosophy and that they, sh- they were being told that they ought to worship angels. This is why uh, Paul responds in, in Colossians 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul, he's saying this fullness that that you're seeking, it's only found in Christ because he is the fullness of God. Within him, he's not lacking anything. 
It already exists within Jesus. And so Paul's, Paul's turning uh, to the Colossians and he's saying, don't you guys see? Don't you guys see what, what is before you? Don't worship the, the angels. Don't worship creation. Worship the one who created the angels. He's trying to draw these parallels so that you and I might see that we often, and, and you know, and it's, it sounds dumb to us because we're like, it's stupid, worshiping angels. Like, that's a dumb thing to do. Obviously, we shouldn't do that. But essentially, what they're doing is they're worshiping creation, and we do that a lot. We worship created things rather than the creator often. Paul says, don't you see how wonderful and amazing Jesus is? Worship the creator. Don't worship creation. Paul had to say this repeatedly. He said this to the Romans in, in uh, Romans 1 verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, this is a problem that we deal with all the time. You know, we're prone to worshiping creation. We enslave ourselves to worshiping creation, whether that is putting ourselves in submission to friends, what our friends think about us, to our jobs, to, you know, material goods, things that, you know, we want our house to look a specific way or we need to get that job so we can, you know, drive a certain type of car or afford a certain type of thing or we have to have a certain type of lifestyle so people will think that we're really, uh, you know, we're really healthy. A lot of these things that are creation are good things, but we make them ultimate things. We put them in the place of God rather than putting them in the place of things that glorify God. And so we are prone to this as well. Verse 20 Uh, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God has reconciled all things to Christ. Everything has been reconciled to Jesus as a result of his work upon the cross. The problem is, is that there, the problem that, that was existing before is that things were not doing their intended purpose. Humans are intended to be in relationship with the Lord, and so we needed reconciliation because we weren't in relationship with him. Heaven and earth was created to bring glory to God, but then sin entered the world through man, and now we have weeds and difficult work and like all, all of this other things that, that were the result. But through Christ's work, all things are in the process of being reconciled to Jesus. Because creation, all of creation, is not functioning as it was originally intended to be, as designed at the beginning. And creation is in need of reconciliation. I mean, you know, when it talks about reconciliation, it's this restoration of fellowship between God and man, between God and creation. Paul's not only talking about God and man here. He's talking, uh, when he talks about all things, he's talking about similar to what he said earlier, all things being things that are on the earth or in heaven. 
all things. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this peace has been established through Christ. This is what he says in Romans 8, verse 19. Uh, We'll start in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is just waiting for you know, for, for Christ's work, for us to, to bow in subjection to Jesus. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All creation is awaiting Christ's work. And that reconciliation might be purchased through the cross. And so God has brought all of creation back under his sovereign power through the work of the cross. He says that he made peace, lastly in verse 20 there, through the work of the cross. And so this peace that God is talking about here is not only peace with God and man because of this reconciliation. Of course, that's one. He is also talking about peace in our relationships with one another. So we ought to be peacemakers as uh, Jesus came to make peace with us because God makes peace because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But also... We are to be living in peace with our world. We are to be stewards, environmentally uh, oriented in the sense that we are making wise choices, not being uh, carelessly foolish. You know, like obvious things. doesn't mean like you have to be like the world's greatest tree hugger, uh, you know, but that you are lovingly and caringly making decisions to steward over creation well because God has called us to do that through this peacemaking process, through the blood of the cross. Because Jesus' kingdom will be about peace. And he is the one who institutes it, and he's the one who will bring it about. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, uh, speaking about this, this baby, you know, it's the one that we often read along uh, around Christmas. Uh, Unto us a, a, a son will be given, or a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And then it says uh, in verse 9, or Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this peace that was purchased through the cross will come about and will be finally established when every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and there will be no end to that peace. Everything will be set right as it should be because of Jesus' work upon the cross. So now, as we wrap up, we come to what Paul intended to get out of the Colossians. He has given us these things so that we might consider how amazing, how wonderful, how awesome Jesus is, and then we might say, Lord, 
set my heart upon Jesus in a way where I treasure these things, where I see myself as creation and I want to subject myself to the creator. I want to humble myself before Jesus. What we set out to do this morning was to take out that magnifying glass and magnify Jesus, to zoom in and to to show the wonderful nature, the wonderful character of Jesus. And then let our hearts, filled with that knowledge, filled with that, that great information, that great understanding of who Jesus is, then now as we come to respond in worship, overflow out of that. To sit back and say, we're amazed by who you are, Jesus. That's what was, Paul was counting on here with the Colossians. That they would be like, we don't need to worship angels. We're already full. We already have Jesus. We already have these amazing things. He's the one who is giving me breath to even, uh, you know, to, to even sing out these words, to lift my hands and worship. He's the one who has enabled me to, to be here in this exact moment. It is by his will, by his design, by Uh, his power that I am here. Recognizing that and being in, in humble adoration at his goodness and his faithfulness to sustain us in every portion of our lives. That's what Paul intends for the Colossians. That's what Paul intends for us as we consider this list. Let's pray together. Let's worship. Let's respond to the goodness of Jesus and this is these beautiful descriptions of who he is. Lord, we're thankful for your loving kindness towards us. Lord, we're thankful that we just have this amazing, this wonderful list in Scripture speaking of what you've done, Lord, that you are the creator, you are the preeminent one from the beginning. Lord, you uh, all, you have created all things. They're created through you and for you. Lord, and so as we've been made in your image, not for us, but for your glory, we want to rightly turn now and respond and give you glory. We want to respond and worship now. And so lead us, Lord. Just squeeze out of our hearts, Lord, just that affection, that response to seeing Jesus this morning. We don't want to go away cold and unchanged, but we want to go out humbled and thankful for the faithfulness of Jesus to obey the Father, to go to the cross on our behalf. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us, Lord, as we sing your praises together, as we respond in worship. We love you. Amen.